Welcome back to Season 2 of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic Science Podcast, where we look forward to the new synthesis in the new millennium between faith, philosophy, and science. Welcome to Episode 65 of That's So Second Millennium. This is the beginning of our interview with Maureen Kondik, the first of three segments that we'll be releasing from this interview. So... She is the St. Albert Awardee, as we mentioned in the, in the podcast itself. She's a highly decorated uh, embryologist, neuroscientist, as well as someone who, in the throes of the uh, initial enthusiasm about embryonic stem cells, was one of the few people willing to stand up and say this is not just unethical, but from the standpoint of destroying human life, but it's unethical from the standpoint of is a bill of goods being sold to the general public that will not deliver on its promises. We start the conversation with the discussion of Dr. Kondik's own life, how she was drawn to science, and specifically to cellular biology, starting from the story of Marie Curie, and then narrowing down to cells, and an interesting discussion of how that, uh, how she sees that process playing out. We discuss, in passing, why chicks are such good em- subjects for embryology, we discuss Marine's odd claim that she's a bad Catholic, which I still, uh, I've listened to it now a couple of times, and I still don't entirely follow it. <laughs> but it involves her journey from a somewhat sheltered Midwestern childhood into the atheist hothouses of the University of Chicago and Berkeley. Um, we discuss and lament something that we t- take up again in later segments of the interview, the tendency of scientists not to spend any time on philosophical formation. She tells a very poignant story about a call from a man in a desperate <clears throat> situation, one of the people being sold the bill of goods that embryonic stem cells would solve everything. She tells that uh, very poignant story. Bill asks her where stem cell research stands today. We talk a little bit about how you test for plenipotent or totipotent stem cells, which is to say you inject them into a mouse and wait for it to die filled with tumors. And, of course, because you depend on me for this kind of uh, high-quality insight, I draw a parallel between the plot of Star Trek 2 and 3 and the the concept of proto-matter that plays such a fundamental role in the plot of those movies as an analogy for these uh, stem cells that are just a little too unpredictable to really use for the purposes we've tried to put them to. So that will that will round out the first segment of this interview, be a little over 40 minutes by the time we have the entire file. So sit back and enjoy. The audio quality is better than last week. Not entire, not uh, what it should be to uh, to have archived this conversation, but uh, but a lot closer. So hopefully I won't be trying your patience anywhere near this much this week. Um, with that, I'll uh, take it, let myself, <laughs> the me of several days ago, take it away. Okay, so the mic is now on. We are... Greatly privileged to have Dr. Maureen Kondik from the University of Utah here. She is um, the one being awarded the St. Albert Award at this year's Society of Catholic Scientists Conference. So we're actually talking the afternoon before the conference begins. So uh, Dr. Kondik has her bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago, a PhD from UC Berkeley. That must have been an oppressive environment. Uh, <laughs> and she did a postdoc at the University of Minnesota. She has been at the University of Utah since 1997. Correct. Um, and has been awarded uh, a number of awards, both for her science and for her 
um, stand on life issues. So with that, um, you know, I'm not necessarily one of those people who like to read uh, a speaker's entire, you know, we could go on for five minutes and read your, your entire list of citations. Um, but uh, I would encourage the listener to look them up for himself or herself. And uh, hopefully we can just get started a little bit. Um, so we'd like to talk today both about your personal experience as a um, <laughs> a, uh, a researcher in embryology and uh, related fields who has felt the need to stand up for what's true in difficult situations, as well as, you know, sort of the nuts and bolts of what you do, since our audience, I think, is a number of scientists in it. And I think a number of them would be interested in knowing, just hearing more about that. Absolutely. I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to engage all of those topics in whatever order seems to make sense. Okay. Well, we'll do our best. Making sense is uh, something that we work on. It's a goal that we aspire toward. We don't necessarily always get all the way there. So, yeah. So... So, uh, at what point did you feel drawn toward biology, the biological sciences? That's a, it's an interesting question because I think, um, I, my vocation as a scientist happened quite early. I lived in a small town in the Midwest and, uh, was easily bored. So I remember uh, <laughs> going to familiar. my local, yeah. my local library, public library, which is a tiny yeah. little library. Yeah. And after I had, blasted through all of the young adult section and, and anything else that seemed of interest, I discovered biographies and fell in love with these little little stories from history about real people but with all the drama and yeah. heartbreak and everything else that yeah. comes along with a biography worthy individual. Yeah. Uh, and being the uh, rather OCD person I, I was then and still am, uh, I started at eight and I started reading through all the <laughs> yes. on the shelves. <laughs> and, and I remember vividly that, you know, when I got to see and I read the biography of Maria Curie, it just, I had never, ever encountered anybody who I could relate to as strongly as I related to her. And I remember just closing the book and just saying, that's it. I'm okay. going to win the Nobel Prize in physics and chemistry. I'm going to die from radiation poisoning. It's just my life. It's going right. to be like this. It's going to be like this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so I decided I was going to be a scientist. My father was a philosopher. My mother um, was, was a mom. And they thought I was completely insane. And if I just grew up, you know, just had to have something to do with hormones because I was probably about 12 at the time. Okay. Um, it, would, it would wear off, but it never did. <laughs> <laughs> We're still waiting. We're still, We're still waiting. waiting. We're yeah. still waiting. Yeah. So that's how I know how I got interested in science. Um, and how I got interested in biology, I think, you know, I've often, I've often speculated that there's uh, kind of a reciprocal relationship between the size of the question, its intrinsic interest, mm-hmm. and the precision of the answer. So the really yeah. big questions, like, you know, what is consciousness in the brain? Right. You know, how did life evolve? Right, right. <laughs> you know, sort of the things that you can spend your whole life pondering and that are extremely compelling because they, yeah. they can have such epic dimensions. They're fabulously interesting questions, but you, but the answers to them are inherently imprecise. You can never yeah. get a good, clean answer to that question. On the other end, you know, if you're interested in, you know, what the upstream regulatory elements are that drive expression of a particular gene in a particular tissue at a particular yeah. time and in development, you know, you can get down to a 10 or 11 letter answer to that that's extremely precise and very yeah. manipulable, but also intrinsically boring. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this yeah. is not, yeah. not a compelling question, but the precision of the answer is extremely intellectually satisfying. So on that trade-off, everybody's got to find a point where the questions are big enough, yeah. 
the answers are precise enough that you yeah. can be satisfied with those. Actually, things. tractable. Yeah. So, so for me, that turned out to be cells. Um, you know, cells are living units. They they have interesting behaviors. They're unpredictable. Mm-hmm. They have an aesthetically beautiful quality to them. Yeah. You, you can look at them and be pleased by yeah. just their elegance and mm-hmm. and um, complexity. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But they're they're they give you trackable answers. You can you can get precise enough answers that so I had started out in psychology and mm-hmm. trying to understand what was consciousness and how did memory work and mm-hmm. what that whole brain thing was all about. But so, I eventually ended up with the development of the nervous system because that's largely a cellular process and the yeah. decision of the answers is much higher. Yeah. Yeah. But you can get to the point where at the at the end of a five year period you may actually have some answers to a set of questions you asked mm-hmm. in the beginning. And you have tools. You have yeah. you have things that can manipulate the system in the future that you can you can test hypotheses on a very precise level mm-hmm. without without ever losing, you know, the, the beauty and the compelling aspect of a living unit that's responding to the manipulation. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. In, in ways that uh, I find crystals very elegant, but admittedly they are not as complex there as as cells are with all of the things that the cell has to accomplish to keep to get its work done. So, yeah, and that was um, so that so you've you've kind of it looks like branched out from the nervous system to you know other fields as well. Mm-hmm. Um, how has that? So so what was your what was your what was your PhD dissertation about? Well, so my PhD was, um, as I said, sort of in neural development within a very very simple system, mm-hmm. and uh, I was interested in the factors that control uh, a very very specific behavior of of a, of a single cell in the peripheral nervous system of this organism mm-hmm. that establishes a very characteristic route that it follows mm-hmm. to get to where it needs to go. So. You know, the nervous system is a, ultimately ends up a big computation machine, but it develops itself without a blueprint. And right. it, it has fabulous precision. And the function of the nervous system as a machine, as a calculator, um, requires or relies on intrinsically very, very precise location connections between cells. Yeah. And these cells can be really, really far away from each other mm-hmm. in early development. And so it's quite mysterious. How do we wire up the nervous system? So that was my question. How, yeah. how do we? How does a cell at a particular location know where where it needs to mm-hmm. extend, who it needs to talk to, yeah. uh, and who it doesn't? Yeah. Uh, some of this gets refined by behavior later on in development, but as a first pass in the embryo, we set up pretty much the structure of the nervous system yeah. with good accuracy. And honestly, we have no clue. <laughs> even now, <laughs> even after my brilliant thesis, which was, I'm sure, earth-shattering and changed uh, the yeah, thinking yeah, in the yeah, field and all of that stuff, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're still... Go back uh, and calculate its uh, age index and all of that stuff. <laughs> we're still very, uh, very much in the dark about how it is that the basic uh, principles of wiring happen. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I started with was um, development of the nervous system, but that already put me into the general swimming pool of embryonic development. Right. And nothing develops in a vacuum. So right. the nervous system is kind of connected to the development yeah. of all the other things. Yeah. So well, the nerves themselves have the, the glial cells and everything that helps them do what they do. I mean, yep. they're a minority of the cells in the brain, is my understanding. <laughs> yes, we have many more glial cells than we have neural cells. Uh, but but I. Because I was working in a development system, I started yeah. getting more and more interested in embryology. How do how do how does the whole thing put itself together? Yeah. And I started teaching embryology yeah. uh, as a graduate student, and then continued on 
uh, as a faculty member. So what uh, what was your work at the University of Minnesota? What was the focus there? Uh, continuation of my graduate work, but in a different system. So uh, I had worked originally in a scientists use all sorts of this. Your listeners, of course, know you know model systems that have yeah. strengths only in particular areas. So yeah. my initial system was a great one for um, a very stereotypic pattern of, of neural outgrowth during development. So I was working in um, just a circle Americana, which is the um, American locust. Okay. Grasshoppers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, they had beautiful embryos and fabulously beautiful neurons at the embryonic stage. Uh, but they weren't a really great system for direct relevance to vertebrate models or to yeah. genetics. So yeah. as a postdoc at Minnesota, I was uh, transferring to uh, a vertebrate model, so mice and chicks, mostly chicks, okay. uh, looking at various aspects of sensory neural development in that system. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then you, and then after that, you you got your faculty position at uh, at Utah. Yes. So. And carried on. Then and carried moving on. a little bit more into um, spinal regeneration. Okay. Uh, and peripheral nerve regeneration. So uh, that that was involving more mammalian models, rat models, mice models, but continuing to work in chicks because they're a really accessible vertebrate model. Okay. For the kind of cellular manipulations I was doing. Okay, well, that's interesting. I did not know there was a, a field of biology where they were that much more handy than mice were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not, not a great system for genetics, but a really, really good ses- system for cellular manipulation and, and observation because you can mm-hmm. uh, pretty much leave the embryo intact and still watch what's happening inside. Okay. So, so yeah. that's true of other systems as well, but very little bit of mice. Yeah, huh. that's interesting. Yeah, that's all, all these details you wouldn't know unless you actually tried to get the, the nuts and bolts of it to actually work. Um, so, so at what point, I mean, what is your history in terms of, you know, your, your religious outlook? How has that been shaped over time? You know, um, I hate, I hate to characterize myself as, as a, as a bad Catholic, but I'm, I'm kind of a bad Catholic. <laughs> you know, I was raised, I was raised Catholic. My, my father and mother were both very, very faithful people and very, very smart people. And so I, I started out in the faith, um, with, with not a lot of questioning, um, mm-hmm. because I trusted my parents. They were smart. Yeah. They, they, they believed in this. So why not? Yeah. Um, and it didn't really seem to, make much of a difference to me. Of course, in college, <laughs> you, yeah. I went to the University of Chicago, was yeah. learning with... You know, oh, gosh, yeah, yeah. 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 The, the, and then Berkeley. And yeah. then Berkeley, yeah. A lot of people disagreed with, with that view. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. Um, at that point, I'd already had my Maria Curie you know, um, epiphany, and so I knew that this was this was who I was going to be. And, and it, it, if I were to define myself, I would define myself first as a scientist. I think it's so it's so absolutely intrinsic to the way I look at the world yeah. that everything has to be based on evidence. It has to be based on logic and reason. It, it can't be self contradictory. Yeah. Um, you know, this is this is just how how I, my brain works. So yeah. where does Catholicism fit in with that? Yeah. I think a lot of people when they first encounter other other individuals who question their faith or the way they were raised, mm-hmm. and if they have that mindset, if they have an analytic mindset, um, sometimes they, they just cave. Mm-hmm. They cave based on authority. Yeah. A lot of really smart people are telling me that I'm just brainwashed and this yeah. whole religion thing is incompatible with science, and I love science and I want to be a scientist, so that means I have to kind of give up the religion thing. Right. Yeah, but I'm just a little bit too sober for that. 
right? <laughs> there was at least that. Well, stubbornness well, and, and stubbornness has its, has its purpose. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that um, what that what those kinds of naysayers charged me to do was not not to bow to their authority, but but to question their authority. Mm-hmm. And the more you question the authority of of people who propose alternative worldviews. The more you keep coming back to, well, what is actually making the most sense in the world? Yeah. What what yeah. vision of the world actually accounts for most of the data? Right. And in my experience, it's it's a Christian vision of the world, and yeah. a particular Catholic vision of the world that yeah. very much endorses precisely the kind of questioning mind that that promotes scientific investigation. In the yeah. First place. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you can certainly find Catholics who don't live up to that standard, unfortunately, but. But they're the ones that do, and yeah. yeah. And what do you what do you have on the other other sides of the debate? That's that's the question. Yeah, and I think I think many many scientists in particular um, really don't don't question deeply. I mean, there's so <laughs> I often tell this story because I think it puts things in perspective. But yeah. when I was um, a graduate student preparing for my preliminary exams, mm-hmm. um, I'm in the field of developmental neuroscientists. Science it's a relatively new field, yeah. um, and I wanted to be on top of things. So I've already mentioned the OCD thing. So in preparation for my, right. <laughs> for my prelims, I read every single paper that has ever been published in the entire discipline. Yeah. And it was 386 papers. Or, yeah. I remember it made a stack of about you know, four and a half feet on the foot yeah. of my Yeah. You were, you were reading them on PDFs at and that point. I, I read everything that had ever been published yes. in the field. <laughs> so today, you yeah. know, 300 papers a month yeah. come out in the field. Yeah. I mean, oh, if, yeah. I, if I tried, if I read twenty four seven and did nothing else, you couldn't possibly yeah. stand on it. Yeah. And so, as a consequence, inevitably people get narrower and narrower. Oh yeah. They it's, they it's focus down on some very very little slim size because you just can't. It's overwhelming. Yeah. And as a consequence, yeah. many scientists feel very smart. They feel very analytic, and they truly are. Mm-hmm. Within their narrow, within their discipline. narrow subfield. Yes. Do they think about how? What was the origin of the universe? Yeah. If there's a causal chain for everything, what's the first cause? What, yeah. what set all of this in motion? Yeah. How do you explain consciousness, truth? Yeah. Based yeah. on yeah. properties, what are the real differences between humans and, and non-human primates or other mammalian species? Yeah. All of these are really critical questions. To the conclusion that everything can be explained by reductionist means, and that there is no need for a god, yeah. but, but do does the average scientist spend a whole lot of time contemplating these questions? Almost not. <laughs> yeah, Almost I mean, because they have no time. There is that too. Yeah, I mean that's that side of it. But it's it's. I mean, it is a deficiency in the way we the way we teach science, the way we train scientists. It's it doesn't have to be that way. But that is the way, um, what we drif- drifted into. Yeah, I mean, I was very fortunate to have a, a capstone experience in my own undergrad, where we actually looked at philosophy of science. We read some Popper, we read some Kuhn, um, we looked at the history of geology as a discipline in its own, you know, its own recent history. Which at that time, people who were still very much active had lived through the plate tectonics revolution. Oh. Wait, all these ideas we had about how mountains were built are wrong. <laughs> They're actually quite wrong. <laughs> and that, uh, you know, that, that I think that also has put some humility in the field in a certain sense. Like, oh, which is, which is wearing off now as it inevitably has to. But, um, yeah, but, but not everyone gets that by any stretch. 
They don't. And I think I think particularly in biology there's there's such an intoxication with success. Yeah. We've we've had so much phenomenal success in understanding the basic underlying mechanisms of life yeah. and applying it to human disease and to um, drug design and to all of the things that have been so so amazingly powerful in the last 20, 30 years of science. In, within the field of biology, um, people people are very confident. Yes, that, 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 they, <laughs> that they are that they're on top of their game. That that they can answer all the other questions and all the questions that you know this weak and small minded people ponder as they clink their guns and their Bibles. Um, right, we don't really have to think about. We don't have to worry about that because no. you know we're changing the world here and mm-hmm. you know, making progress and redefining the species and curing disease and. Yeah. What yeah. more do we need to do? <laughs> right, right, yeah. Uh, for the people that we choose to let into the uh, sphere of people whose problems we care to solve, yeah. as opposed to the people we're willing to use in order to solve the actual problems. But ah, uh, yeah. So we talked about it a little bit before we started recording. <laughs> what has been what has been your experience as being you know someone someone with this background and then and then making your way through the academy and the larger political world that's connected to it. I mean, obviously you're, you're here to be awarded partly because people believe that you took a very courageous stand against people and, and have taken a lot of bullets. Yeah. You know, I, I, I suppose I have, I, I tend to not think of it in those terms. I mm-hmm. think, I think that every step where I've exposed myself to the ridicule of my profession and, and the inevitable consequences of, of that ridicule. Yeah. Um, it's always been for a reason. And the reason yeah. always had to do with, uh, with upholding the truth. I mean, the main, the main event that got me started in, in public advocacy and public education, uh, which is definitely the area in which I've taken the most, where I've earned the name Pariah in the eyes of my colleagues. Right. Uh, <laughs> is, right. Um, I'll start it because uh, back in, in uh, 2000, I had some really uh, strong results on uh, the topic of neural regeneration, of adult regeneration. And mm-hmm. I'm not a physician, I'm a PhD scientist. Yeah. Uh, but the NIH picked up this result and, and ended up getting into the popular press. And suddenly, from all over the world, I, I started getting phone calls and emails from spinal injury individuals who mm-hmm. wanted to know if my results were going to get them out of the wheelchair. Yeah. I have, at that time, did not appreciate, but I've come to appreciate, and I still work with this community of patients, how mm-hmm. very, very aggressive they are and um, very well-educated you know, and mm-hmm. really self-advocates, you know, go out and try to find find answers to their problems. Yeah. So um, I developed kind of a standard uh, reply. You know, this is basic research. I'm very optimistic that it may someday translate into, and that satisfied most people. Until I truly had a an event that changed changed my life and put me on a very different course of action, and you'll have to apologize if I if I cry about this because I often do. Um, I got a phone call from a young man whose wife and five children had been hit by a drunk driver, mm-hmm. and his wife and the three older kids died at the scene of the accident, and the two little babies who were both under the age of five were um, high level observable. That played a dependent quite a bit. Yeah, and he's crying on the phone. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's just begging me, you know, I'll do anything, I'll give you my own body. Mm-hmm. You've got to do something for my kids. Mm-hmm. And I'm crying, I had no idea what to say to this man. And uh, 
at some point I asked him some neutral question about getting support or, you know, trying, you know, who was he, has he talked with? And he goes into a complete diatribe against George Bush mm-hmm. because his senator had contacted him mm-hmm. and um, was trying to convince him to bring the girls to Washington to testify before Congress um, about stem cell research. Mm-hmm. And his senator had told him that there was a cure that was mm-hmm. being blocked by George Bush's policies on um, okay. stem cell research. Okay. And the rage just blind, frustrated rage at this man. Yeah. I remember hearing him the fold of my hand looking literally at the phone. Yeah. And going, nobody, nobody who suffered as much as this person should be used like this. Yeah. You know, should be used as a political pawn. Yeah. Because that's all it is. Yeah. You know, the yeah. senator knows that, that if he brings these poor wheelchair bound babies to, to Washington, that yeah. they're going to get political support for. Yeah. A research agenda that that he's simply willing to lie about. Yeah. And so I decided right then and there somebody has to tell these people the truth. You know, it has yeah. to be willing to spend time and effort and develop a rapport and mm-hmm. talk with people about what we really do know. Mm-hmm. And so we talked for two hours. And I think it was the hardest conversation I've ever had. I'm sure. And in the end, he thanked me. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, it was a very sobering realization. I mean, I had to tell him that there is no cure. Nobody was hiding this from me. This yeah. is an incredibly complex area of research. Um, it's moving very, very slowly. Yeah. Um, stem cells could potentially have some benefit here, but in actuality, it wouldn't be in my top pick of the top 500 things that could be helped by stem cells. Right. Um, your girls are going to be in wheelchair for yeah. a long time. And your job is to try to help them have those that they can have. Yeah. Because there is no secret here. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, it, I, I set out from that point forward yeah. <laughs> trying to get the word out and trying to yeah. be an advocate for patients and for knowledge and for factual information. Yeah. Um, I think some of the common signs is we start believing our own press releases. Right. And people, people really have, the scientific community has such optimism Mm-hmm. For, for the power to cure, the power to move forward, that yeah. we just unfetter science and put the least number of restrictions on people. Right, right. We're going to have the highest benefit. Mm-hmm. But there's a difference between saying that and having the data support it. Right, right. So, so I, that's what I've tried to do, and I do it a lot. <laughs> I yeah. fly all over the world and talk to people about what we know, what we don't know, what yeah. we're unlikely to ever know. Um, yeah. And why? Mm-hmm. That's a that's a tall order. Uh, well, we don't. We all have. We, we all do our part in some way. But I think the more you do it, the easier it gets. Either you, oh, yeah. you find you find ways of speaking to people that that bring with them and that help them wrap their heads around mm-hmm. these very very complex topics mm-hmm. in a manner where they can they can assume. The responsibilities of responsible citizenship. You know, they can they can influence the political process in an appropriate way without relying on scientists who have conflicts of interest and a vested a vested interest in having things come out in a particular way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that's that's one thing. Yeah, I mean, once you get how people actually live their lives involved in it, then the, the stakes go up so much and it becomes so much harder to do science, which demands 
you know, that willingness to say, you know what? I might be wrong about this. <laughs> Very true. <Absolutely. laughs> Especially when you've invested so much of your life and, yeah. and uh, so much, so much uh, public money and yeah. you know, the, the effort of your trainees and everyone else. And yeah, yeah. being willing to accept no for an answer is a tough, a tough yeah. job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If I just get a few more data points and I try an- another couple of statistical analyses, maybe I'll get something that makes it look like it's a success. That's yeah, a <laughs> It's a temptation. It's, it's a difficult temptation to turn down. Where does that whole world of stem cell research stand now? Are you finding yourself uh, uh, saying uh, this is possible uh, more often now? Or are expectations even rising so that you have to still say no uh, a lot of times? <laughs> you know, I think... Um, one of the things that made stem cells kind of a low-hanging fruit for, for criticism of the outrageous scientific optimism that we're going to cure everything from baldness to infectomas was the fact that there were such obvious long-standing scientific problems associated with the application of stem cell research to, to patients. And the whole nature of serious long-standing scientific problems is that they're serious. Right. And long standing. <laughs> and someone would have fixed them if they were that easy to fix. Uh, if they were easy to fix, yeah, yeah. I mean, they would have been fixed. And very often it's because the, the problems are not just complex, but they are linked to the intrinsic nature of the cells themselves. So, one of the problems I pointed out in my first critique of stem cells being the panacea for all human disease was. Um, the reason stem cells are scientifically interesting um, is that they have the capability of developing in a wide range of different development pathways. Mm-hmm. Right? So if I take a skin cell from you, it's pretty much restricted to being a skin cell. And mm-hmm. It's hard to, that we have found ways now to maybe do something else. Stem cells are great because they, they can produce all the different cells within the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet this... Very capability that makes them interesting scientifically also makes them extremely problematic medically because um, one of the ways that evolution has protected the DNA of the cell from um, accumulating random mutations, which would turn it into a cancer cell, is to take all the DNA you're not actively accessing. So if you're a liver cell, you really don't need all those genes that control heart function or skin function or brain function. And so this is a simplification, but but a, a useful way of thinking about it. So you kind of pack all of that DNA up in, in a chromatin structure that is much more resistant to um, mechanical and chemical insult. Mm-hmm. Uh, by essentially inactivating. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what makes cells stable um, enough to persist without accumulating mutations that will turn them into cancer cells. Right. But if we don't do that, mm-hmm. if we are the kind of pluripotent stem cell that everyone is very fascinated with as a biological mm-hmm. um, question, that cell is intrinsically prone to accumulating mutations and yeah. becoming a cancer cell. This has been shown hundreds and hundreds of times that inevitably these cells always, always undergo some kind of mm-hmm. chemical mutagenesis, structural mutagenesis. They turn into cancer cells very, very badly and wow. very reliably. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, 
Do you not remember Richard Nixon? Okay, and you remember that you know back in nineteen seventy one he started the war on cancer institute. That's right. National Cancer Institute, okay? And yeah. since then we have spent hundreds of billions of dollars. Yeah. You know, countless crews of brilliant scientists and physicians have been devoted to yeah. to addressing this problem of, of cancer, you know, oncogenesis, how do, how do cells turn into cancer cells? And it's not like we've made no progress, but if you look at the death rates from cancer over the last 50 years, they have, smoking does have declined dramatically, or because people see some smoking, right. but, but cancer does have, you know, we barely need a notch. Wow. And it's because it's a tough problem to fix. So, honestly, Given that we've made such limited progress on these questions since I initially made my, my predictions that we weren't going to progress rapidly towards application of stem cells to uh, right. medical conditions, you know, nothing has changed. I should like, change my middle name to Nostradamus, but, <laughs> <laughs> but all the predictions I made back in 2001, 2002 have really been upheld precisely because they weren't just frivolous right. naysayer yeah. objections. No. They were things like, these are foreign cells. They're going to be rejected by the immune system. We've known about immune rejection for many, many decades. Yeah. We've made some progress, but it's still an enormous problem and people still die from incompatible tissue transplant. Yeah. Uh, this oncogenic transformation thing, which is very, very well established. The other thing that's challenging about stem cells is even when they're not cancer, they are tumor-forming. In fact, that's the gold standard for, for stem cell biology. If you develop a cell line and you imagine it to be a stem cell line, a perfect stem cell line, the gold standard test is you inject it into an immune compromised mouse and you wait for the mouse to die because it has tumors all over its body right. that, are, yeah. that are formed from the stem cells. Yeah. And that and the tumors contain derivatives of all the major embryonic lines. Yeah. Uh, and that's how you know you, you've got a stem cell. Yep. We were so- Successful. Yeah, we were successful. So awesome. let's put those into humans. Yeah, let's do that. brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, so so these yeah. are these are you know so oncogenicity, the tumorigenicity, the, the immune incompatibility, and the final mm-hmm. one is you could fix most of these if we could control the development of these cells mm-hmm. um, into more mature derivatives. So if, if we, you are a patient who has a heart problem, we want to create heart cells for you. If I could start with stem cells and drive them up to heart, heart mature heart cells that we could use for transplant or treatment, um, then they would no longer have these problems. They would make tumors. They would be prone to, to um, um, tumors. or whatever you call it. Right. And if, and, and if we took the cells from you or we, or if we had a big enough bank of cells, we could perhaps address the immune problem. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we've been working on stem cells. The first mouse um, embryonic stem cells were isolated in you know, more than 35 years ago. And uh, driving them into mature states is very, very challenging. I mean, it, it's it's not, again, not a simple problem that we're just going to fix it. Throw a few million dollars at it and oh, yeah. it'll be something we'll, we'll figure out. So all 10, those problems... 10, 20 doctoral students will get this yeah, yeah, knocked no out. Yeah, yeah, we'll knock this right out. You know, so it's not that it's not an interesting area of research. It's I think it's a fabulous area of research. Mm-hmm. I work on stem cells. Right. <laughs> right. Um, I am yeah. not opposed to stem cell biology. Yeah. But um, but it's but transitioning basic research into into medical applications is um, is mm-hmm. faces many significant problems. Mm-hmm. And yeah. those problems still stand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And uh, is there still that polemic between um, uh, embryonic stem cells and the as a, as a lay person, I'm not sure uh, is that the more important uh, stem cells. Yeah, embryonic stem cells versus what people generally just call adult stem cells, right. like more right. tissue specific yeah. stem cells. Exactly. Yeah. So that has that that dynamic has has really really declined because um, over the last 10, 15 years, the clinical applications of, of stem cells derived from mature tissues, so-called adult stem cells, mm-hmm. have, have proven to be really, really strong. I mean, they're, they're, they're treatments, they're not cures, you know, mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't have magic here, right. but we do have um, thousands of clinical trials involving um, adult stem adult cells, stem cells. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that are showing benefit to patients. Um, and so, I, I think uh, the other big new player in the field, of course, is the reprogramming cells that mm-hmm. Yamanaka won the Nobel Prize for. Uh-huh. Those, um, those cells have um, proven to be wildly popular among scientists because they're easy to make. Um, they sidestep all of the ethical issues. We don't have to worry about getting eggs. We don't have to worry about yeah. getting embryos and then destroying those embryos. Yeah. Um, but they're a lot simpler. <laughs> Honestly, we don't yeah. have to have a relationship with a yeah. with a fertility clinic who's going to have spares and, and <laughs> right. Yeah, so so um, definitely that has been a game changer in, yeah. in the field as well. So, what was that specific? The specific name of that last type of stem cell? The induced pluripotent stem cell. Induced like pluripotent yeah. cells. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, amazing, amazing. One of the most important scientific findings in the last 50 years. Yeah, yeah. And how long has that? It seems to me like it's been a few years since that was first. 2007 was the first demonstration okay. in animals. Okay. And then 2008, I think, or six, seven, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Animals and then human, human tissue. Um, and he won the Nobel Prize in 2012. Yeah. yeah. I, thought it, I thought it had been a minute. So, yeah. yeah that's, and that is, that's a beautiful thing. So, if we. So I'm staring at Bill, and Bill is Bill is also this sort of bad influence on me. At some point during your discussion of the, the problems in dealing with embryonic stem cells, I'm going to make you know I'm going to date myself not quite back to Richard Nixon, but <laughs> I've spent way too much time watching the '80s Star Trek movies, and so there is a this parallel between if you remember the the plot of Star Trek two and three revolves around this Genesis effect. Yes, the Genesis planet. So Kirk's old girlfriend is, you know, is creating this thing that will, you know, terraform, you know, this planet and create life. And then they realize that the planet in Star Trek three, they realize the planet they've made is unstable. Mm -hmm. And they're asking Kirk's, I guess, son, it says, yeah, it says, look, judgment son as if we care about these things in the enlightened 23rd century i'm sure um and he's like well we were using proto matter and it's and somebody spock not spock because spock is dead uh, we're, we're bringing spock back um i think mccoy or somebody says that's totally you know that's that's against uh, federation regulations it's too unstable to work with and he's like yeah <laughs> We wanted to see if we could do it. Yeah. We wanted to see if we could do it. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's uh, you know it happens to create planets that self destruct yeah. and uh, you know consume uh, Christopher Lloyd when they go, which is which is a tragedy, <laughs> terrible tragedy. But uh, yeah. If you enjoyed this episode or one of our previous episodes, please leave us a review on iTunes. iTunes is the biggest distributor of podcasts, and having reviews there will help us reach a wider audience. 
We would also love it if you posted your review on other services like Google Play and Stitcher as well. That's So Second Millennium is brought to you by me, Paul Geesting, and by Bill Schmidt. Find more of Bill's work at onwordworld.net.